Hello there. Welcome to Digging Deep. I'm your host, Jordan Cameron. This is a podcast where we bring in a series of interesting guests on to talk about their passions, beliefs and views on the world. And through these conversations, I hope you can all go away, never being afraid to, d- to dig deeper into your everyday lives to find the truth, beauty and new potentials and possibilities we can all truly achieve in this world. Today's guest is Randy Williams, known by his friends and family as The Thief. Randy is a martial arts enthusiast teaching Wing Chun Gung Fu, a USPI, author of the novel Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror, and works security in the rock music industry. Randy, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time oh, yeah, out to come on to today, be. my friend. So before I start, actually, what made you agree to come on the show? Was there something special that piqued your interest about the show? Or uh, was there something like the guests that I've had on before that well, made the show both. intriguing that, that to you? That you just gave about, you know, the objective of the show, the mission statement, if you will, is, is intriguing to me. Because I have a lot of different interests and, and things that I can speak on. Um, what really prompted it is um, having heard my friend Adam Cowan on the show uh, last week and listening to him talk to you. And of course, I know you. We met up in Whitechapel, of all places, in London a couple of years back and uh, had a great conversation. So, you know, it seemed like kind of a no brainer to to talk to a friend that um, that has talked to another good friend of mine and had a really enjoyable podcast Thank you very much. I really appreciate those kind words. Um, yeah, going back to uh, where we um, where we met, Whitechapel, and uh, you've taken me to a lot of really um, interesting places in London when we when we did meet. And um, so I'll, I'm excited to talk more about yeah, that today. Remember we went but, to um, the Blind Beggar so pub in first, Green? Oh yeah, no, I've been trying to think what that pub was um, up into the running of this recording, and. Um, uh, I'm glad um, the, the you remembered the what it was called because it's just literally, yeah, the, um, you told me so many interesting stories there that, um, you know, one of the Cray twins shot someone just in broad daylight mm-hmm. in that pub. And it, I, I went back and I just did so much research on this pub and uh, it, it just blew my mind that, you know, so much history has happened mm-hmm. in one building and it was just incredible to that fathom. And I owe I mean, a lot of that, that to you, so thank small you. small <laughs> area of London, you know, Whitechapel in the East End, you've got Jack the Ripper, you've got the Cray Twins, you know, and, and you know, all of the the socialist riots that took place. There's a lot of history right in the East End of London. Definitely. And, it, it you know, it's, I mean, if you could just go back in time and just experience that it, firsthand, it, I imagine that'd just be something that you could, you just never really no, want to leave it though, right? <laughs> I think I was meant to be born back then, but definitely. Well, actually, I was. I just didn't want to let on how old I am. But uh, yeah, though in, in, <laughs> no, in the old fine. days, um, so many things, in, interesting things happened there. Um, that was kind of the the hotbed of a lot of activities in Victorian London, and and in the sixties with the craze. Do you know why that was such a hotbed area for that, um, like those particular things that happened well, there then? if I had to guess, I mean, if we're talking about the Ripper crimes, it's because um, it was basically the Jewish quarter of London. It was an area where the Jews were basically forced to live um, under what was called the sweating system, which was a quasi-slavery of the Jew in London in the 1800s. So it was a very downtrodden area. There was famine. There was... Of course, you know, poverty, homelessness, there was crime was running rampant, murder, prostitution, and all this within, you know, a couple of miles of Buckingham Palace, where you had the changing of the guards and the fountains and the tea and crumpets and the sort of sun never sets on the British Empire. 
and yet just such a short distance away, you had the worst poverty uh, unimaginable that people wouldn't have imagined could have taken place in that at that time in London. So I think that that you know led wow. to poverty and the poverty and, and homelessness led to it being sort of a a poorer area, which is a breeding ground for crime and organized crime and uh, some of the the seedy underbelly of of London. So it sort of was a, a magnet for that sort of activity. And that was like one of the main things that drew you to London in particular, I take it then, especially with the novel that you've written. That yeah, we'll, talk well about I, mean, later. I was always, I was coming to London for a, a lot of different things. I mean, I've been in rock security since, well, you know, in the, in the early nineties, I was there with uh, Eric Clapton. I, I worked for U2 and in Dublin and, so I was I spent a lot of time in the UK, not only with the rock world, but um, in my security business. I, I did a lot of work in London, um, in the jewelry district of London, and I I also in the martial arts have schools all over England. Most of them are in the Midlands, in the Derby, Nottingham, Long Eaton area. But I was brought to London a, a number of times to do seminars and exhibitions in London. So I spent loads of time over there. You know, I, I mean it's it's not like I've only been there once or twice. And what was it like for the first time you went to London then? Um, I imagine you must have heard so many interesting oh, yeah. I mean, things about it, you right? You have this image, just very much like you probably had images of the United States from watching TV and you, you watch all the TV shows that are filmed in either Hollywood or New York. So you have your image of what it's like. Um, my interest was always in the Ripper crime since I was a, a kid. So the first place I wanted to go was the East End. And of course, it's a lot different now, but there are or were at that time a lot of the buildings still standing where the crimes occurred. Now, all the crime scenes have been mowed down, but I was fortunate enough to see most of them before they were, you know, like Mitre Square, for example, is now this ultra modern um, business complex, but it was at, you know, at the time I first went to London, it was still the way it used to be back in the day. And you could actually stand on the very spot where Catherine Eddowes was killed. Um, really the only crime scene with the Ripper crimes that still exists is uh, where the Goulston Street graffito was left for your listeners who, who know the case, they know that there was a, a message scrawled on the wall that said the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing or something like that because they erased it before it could be photographed. But it was left with a piece of one of the victim's apron, which was blood soaked on the doorstep of a guy that um, was an enemy to the Ripper. And they were trying to incriminate him. But that place on Goulston Street, and, and it was a play on words, Goulston Street, a ghoul is a grave robber or a person who steals body parts. Um, on Goulston Street, um, that location is now a Happy Days fish and chip shop, which is still there. And, you know, everything, the, the architecture is still there, so you can still see that. But that's the only Ripper um, location that still stands. But, of course, when I first went to London, that's what I wanted wow. to see. You know, and I had to do all the double-decker bus, the Buckingham Palace, the Piccadilly, you know, and do all the typical, you know, Chinatown. <laughs> yeah. China. I had to do all the the touristy things, but I was really there for the, the Jack the Ripper sites. That must have, uh, I mean, how, what were you feeling when you first saw that then that, you know, you, you're saying this. Yeah, it was, right it was of kind you. of a dream come true. And I was able to book a tour with the world's leading Jack the Ripper expert, who's since become a really good friend of mine, a guy called Donald Rumbelo. He's one of these people that if you watch any Jack the Ripper documentary or movie, he's either the technical advisor, like for from hell, or he's one of the talking heads that they always consult about the Ripper case. 
and at that time he was running a tour, you know, a Jack the Ripper tour, and he would take you to the sites and give you his slant on on what happened and give you the history. So that was like a dream come true. Meeting Donald Rumbelo to me was was like you know probably when you first met Zoltan from Five Finger Death Punch or something. You know, it was somebody that you only seen on TV or read about, and then all of a sudden he's standing there in front of you, and you think, oh, you know, pinch myself. Yeah, you know, I mean. I've I've gone I've gone to all these festivals and stuff, and I see um, musicians standing up on stage performing to thousands and thousands of people, and then you know you're you just in with arms reach length of them, and you, they just have a chat with you, and you just have to pinch yourself at times. It's like wow, I listen to you mm-hmm. every day on my phone, and all of a sudden <laughs> now you're you're standing there in the flesh, so it's kind of a dream come true thing, and of course to some people meeting Donald Rumble, it would be nothing. They, they don't know who he is. But for me, it's a person I've been following, reading his research since I was just really young. And now he's standing before me. And then, you know, recently I met up with him the same trip when I met you in London a couple of years back, or maybe it wasn't that long ago. Um, I had lunch with Donald Rumble at the Sherlock Holmes pub. And uh, which was, which was amazing. It's over by embankment. And we, we met up and I presented my case to him and I had him just dumbfounded with, with my results on the Ripper case. So to meet a guy like him was, was you know, for some people it'd be like meeting Johnny Depp if that's their favorite movie star or whatever. It was a really big thing for me. So go. I'm not paying that's yeah, yeah. happened so, for you. you know, London <laughs> is always a, a great time for me. I have some really good friends there that teach the same style of martial arts I teach and I go and do clinics at their schools or demonstrations exhibitions and so i i enjoy that i i spend a lot of time not only in uh in Whitechapel, but i have friends um that run schools in arnest grove um and tottenham tottenham as in vietnam but we call it tottenham um and and i i enjoy that more than anything now you know i more than the touristy stuff i mean i'll still go to chinatown and eat and i'll pass by buckingham palace or piccadilly but the, or Trafalgar Square, those those places, but my heart's really in in the East End. We all have a special place in London, and uh, I'm glad to hear. Yours well, that's is why in I picked East it End. as a place to meet up with you. <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting place, actually, as well. I mean, um, I remember when I was coming in, I was like, "Oh my god, I haven't seen Randy since I oh." Because I think the first time I met you was uh, back in 2018. Right, outside the Ohio. tour bus with, with uh, Breaking Bad. Uh, yeah, that was mm-hmm. a very that good was. night. <laughs> um, we just started speaking there, and um, I'm glad we could become friends and finally do something like this. <laughs> Me too. Um, so, um, you obviously heard the mm-hmm. episode yeah. with Orby, and you know how um, the first question starts. So um, I want to pitch it to you as well. So when you were younger, what were some of the things that opened your eyes to a new perspective on how much positivity and perspective the world can offer you as a person? Well, it's absolutely the martial arts. Um, The martial arts have shaped my entire life and everything I have in life, including you as a friend, is directly uh, linked to my martial arts background. I was fortunate enough to grow up. Well, I never actually grew up, to be honest with you, but I was fortunate enough to be a, a kid in uh, L.A. Chinatown, and my next door neighbor on one side was a master of Wing Chun Gong Fu, and my next door neighbor on the other side was training under Bruce Lee, who wasn't quite as famous back then. Whoa! <laughs> and of course, Bruce Lee's school was you could hit it with a stone from my house if you chucked a stone hard enough. So I used to, as a kid, go and peek through the windows 
um, at Bruce Lee's school and watch them training and watch my next door neighbor at work. So when he would get finished with practice and he'd be walking home, I'd go pull on his jacket and beg him to teach me. And uh, he ended up becoming Bruce Lee's top student and I ended up becoming his top student, arguably. Some people would probably not agree with that, but um, Sifu Ted Wong Kem Ming, who he passed away some years ago, but I trained with him for many years in Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's art. So it was basically a perfect storm for someone to become a martial artist because I had a master of Wing Chun, George Yao Chu on one side and Ted Wong coming on the other side and Bruce Lee a hundred yards from my house, not even. And that, um, so, so the martial arts, to get back to your, your question, I guess, the, the martial arts have influenced me, you know, in every way that a kid from Chinatown that could basically end up like a lot of my friends sitting on the fence in Chinatown and doing menial labor and really not going anywhere much in life um, could eventually end up running security for some of the biggest bands out there um, or, or doing seminars in places like London or, uh, you know, Singapore or any of these, you know, exotic locations or Italy. And, and so the positivity that comes from training in martial arts with, with the self-confidence that you gain training with the, the, the mates, the friends that you make uh, in the process of training, you know, you make lifelong friends, you meet people that you can idolize, that you can hold on a pedestal, people that you can aspire to be like. You, you see somebody like Ted Wong or Bruce Lee or, or Sifu George Yao, and you just want to be able to make your hands sizzle through the air like theirs do, or, or to be able to manage a, a combat situation the way that they do or have the kind of control to do certain movements with your body that you never thought you would be capable of doing and, and realizing that you can surmount almost any obstacle in life and you can achieve anything if you, if your mindset is right and you're and, and when you talk about positivity, being, being, having the attitude of a winner and that, that you, you know how to follow that path because you can meet, you meet people that, you can aspire to be like, and they can guide you. So you're not in the dark trying to figure it out. You've got someone that's guiding you and helping you to elevate you to where you want to be in life. That is a beautiful answer. Wow. I, I love how that question always generates such a wonderful, unique answer with every single guest that I've had on. And um, you're just another um, guest who's proven that fact. So thank all you. All in all, wow. just another prick in the wall. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it must make you feel like a superhero at times when you well, first I started mean, out, right? <laughs> some, certain things that happen in, in life make you feel really terrific. You know, the milestones that you hit when you get your black belt, you know, the, the first time you get a grade, even if it's not a black belt, um, when you achieve certain certain things in the martial arts, um, it's it's a real high. And it's a better high than any drug could ever give you or, or any, any other false or artificial means could ever give you because you, you work for it, you earn it, and then you enjoy the fruits of your labor. I, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, when I was younger as well, you know, I was always taught that if you work hard, you can enjoy what you've worked for, you know, and it's just not handed to you on no, a plate or something. No, because if it were, you, know? you wouldn't appreciate it. And, you know, in the martial arts, for example, I mean, oh. I could award anybody a black belt because I'm the head of an organization. So if I felt like it, I could award you a black belt after one lesson. But would that be very meaningful? 
with that black belt. I mean, it might look good on your wall, the plaque um, or the certificate, but as, as soon as you trained with somebody who knew what they were doing, they'd absolutely know that you weren't a black belt. Um, and they, and if you needed to use Wing Chun in a fight, it, you wouldn't have black belt level skills just because somebody handed you a certificate, not you personally, anyone. And so it, you do have to work for it. And when you do work for it, and the achievement is gained. There's a, a certain high that comes with that, I guess you could say. Definitely. Yeah. You know, you have that knowledge that you can carry around and you can pass on to people that, um, you know, that really want to learn it and then they can go and pass it on to someone else. Uh, I suppose that's another beauty well, of knowledge, I, I guess. Before, everything I have in life, including you as a friend, is directly related to my martial arts training and achievement. Because without it, I never would have gotten myself into a position where we would have met at the side of that tour bus with Breaking Ben. Definitely. I mean, it's crazy how, um, I guess, life really turns out for everyone with all these little things you do you know if you didn't go one way or you did go the other way life can be so much more different but i guess that's yeah, the beauty of how it many you missed. like have you ever just run into uh, somebody completely you know in an airport or or uh, at a cafe or something in another country maybe even where you had no idea you'd ever run into that person and when that happens you just got to think how many times did did that almost happen but i turned the wrong way or i walked two minutes earlier and missed this person that I would have run into. How many times did, did we miss those opportunities for everyone that you've had in life? You missed 50 or a hundred or a thousand. It makes you cherish them more, valuable. I guess. Right. <laughs> um, and, and then if you're one that believes in karma or fate, you think, well, you were fated to have that meeting and, and the one that you missed, you weren't. So do you believe oh, everything yeah. happens for a reason yes, then, would you 100%. say? Even if it's like, would you say like the martial arts has um, taught you a way to cope with things that you might not be able to see clearly no as well? I mean, the martial arts pervades everything that I do, um, whether it's running security for some detail or whether it's like in my Jack the Ripper operation. Um, I'm going to name drop here and say, that my very dear friend and, and boss, Zoltan Bathory from Five Finger Death Punch, said, the only reason I solved the Ripper case where so many have failed is because of the fact that not only am I classically trained as a Western detective, but I have the Eastern mindset, which comes to me through the martial arts training, and the Rippers themselves were of the Eastern mindset. So I was able to get into their heads and sort of working backwards decipher their actions and their motivations where other people weren't able to see what was right in front of their face. Wow. That must've been really interesting to go into that mindset then. Was it oh, yeah, scary? Would you say some damage doing it? Because when I was writing my book um, in the initial chapters of the book, I do the murders as, as if you don't know who the killer is. So it would be the man, grabbed the woman and did this and did that. And the man then did this. But later on in the book, after I've revealed to the readers the identities of the rippers, plural, um, I do the murders again from the viewpoint of the murderer. And I had to do what I called going into their room. 
um, and, and sort of put myself into their position and think about their motivations, why they did what they did and how they did it. And I basically, with the guidance of my co-authors, who are the, literally the world's three top forensic scientists who helped me recreate the murders the way they would have been done physically in what order, in, you know, in what order each blow or each wound was delivered to the victim, I was then able to sort of relive the crimes as they must have occurred in a way that probably no one ever was able to do before because I had the assistance of these guys that could actually tell by looking at the bodies and the doctor's reports from back in the day exactly when she was punched, when she was stabbed, when she fell, how she braced herself when she fell. And they can tell all this by the wounds on the body. And when they, once they helped me recreate the order in which the wounds were dealt to the victim, I was able to envision with coupled with my having visited the crime scenes and reading everything there was to read on the subject, I sort of saw and lived the murders through the, vic the murderer's eyes, I should say. And that was a damaging process. Wow. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you've come out of it still, um, I guess, relatively in one piece. I mean, well, going into something like that, well, I don't think I did you'd come out in one piece, right? <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm still somewhat drain damaged. But, um, no, I, I actually did sustain some damage because even though I didn't actually see the murders, I, in my own mind's eye, I did. It's kind of a theater of the mind. And I sort of feel like I witnessed all the murders because I did experience them in my own mind through the the murderer's eyes and and in that respect it's like you can't unsee it um even though i didn't actually see it i feel like i did and it's it's similar to you know i hope you didn't do this but back a few years ago groups like terrorist groups like isis would would do these really well orchestrated youtube videos where they would actually film themselves murdering people um you know as martyrs to the cause they would film themselves beheading people or or burning them alive and as an investigator and as a patriot i i watched some of those which i'm kind of sorry that i watched and you can't actually unsee those things and and it's damaging to your psyche to some extent i can imagine wow um i suppose it comes with part of the it job does, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> um yeah uh, there were, uh, also, I wanted to go on a bit more about what you were saying with your martial arts. I was curious what drew you to martial arts um, at, at the very start. Was there like something you saw on television or was it a friend that perhaps introduced well, I, you to that? My father was a martial artist. Um, and so when other kids were out throwing a football or whatever with their dad, I was doing punches and kicks in the garage. And so I always had an interest in martial arts and growing up in L.A. Chinatown, we had all those, the movies that you probably watched growing up, you know, Kung Fu Theater, where they had the really bad dubbed uh, voices that make it cartoonish. You know, yeah. well, <laughs> when they're in Chinese, they, they were all featured in the Chinese theater in Chinatown in Chinese. And, and when they're done in Chinese, they're not anywhere near as hokey. Okay, yeah, there's people flapping around and jumping, you know, to incredible heights, but they're not nearly as hokey. In other words, you didn't have the dialogue where it's like, Oh, your Kung Fu is pretty good. Hey, well, you know, match for the Chang brothers, you know, that kind of corny, hokey dubbing. Yeah. In Chinese, they're not anywhere near that comical or corny. So, you know, growing up watching the movies and then, of course, 
living where I lived in Chinatown and having two Kung Fu masters for next door neighbors on either side, it was a, an atmosphere very conducive to being a martial artist and, and growing up around a lot of Chinese kids in the neighborhood. Um, the, the interest wasn't so much in basketball or football. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting, like the song says. So I take it that was like um, the first thing you really wanted to do when you were younger. There wasn't any other passions that no, um, gripped I, you at I, first, I think that perhaps. was my earliest passion in life and still is to this very day. It, I, I got into it at a very young age, which you don't have to. You can start martial arts in your 40s, 50s, 60s. But to start at a really young age is an advantage because it just becomes so second nature to you and just part of your being, I guess you could say. And um, in my case, I really, you know, I have passions for other things, you know, investigation, for example, I'm, a, uh, you know, I run a horse farm, I love horses and dogs and animals. But my first love is always the martial arts. And I never forget to, to pay homage to it in the sense that everything I have in life is directly related to it. Luck. Yeah. And, and if you travel, okay, you have a pronounced London or British accent. So if you went to Korea, say, and you're walking around with your family, everybody in Korea knows you're not Korean and you don't live there and you don't, you're not from there. And everybody there knows you don't have a weapon because you couldn't bring one with you on the plane. So you stick out like a sore thumb as a potential victim to certain types of people and when you travel. So you can't bring a gun with you. So you, you should at least have some rudimentary martial arts or, or some sort of self-defense skills if you want to stick up for yourself and your family if you travel, for example. And there are other situations, many you can think of for yourself where you can't have a weapon with you. So I think the, the, the primary reason people come to me is to learn how to defend themselves. Now, sometimes people will, will meet me in different aspects of, of my career. If I'm, say I'm traveling with the band doing security for the band, then they'll, they'll want to train. Like, let's talk about Sean from, from Breaking Ben. He wanted to, you know, get himself in, in better shape. He wanted to, and he's super coordinated. So I think he took it more of a, a challenge to, to see what his coordination level could take him to in the martial arts where he, he could, you know, the, the, um, you've seen the incredible things he can do with drumsticks and, and a drum kit. So just imagine now mm. what, what else can, can I do with this incredible coordination that I, I've developed through drumming? What, what can I do in the martial arts? I've always dreamt of what, what I might be able to accomplish that way. Cause you know, most, most guys and gals, I mean, I don't know so much about girls, but, but a lot of women and, and most guys have always had at least some curiosity about the martial arts and interest in it and thought, I'd like to learn that, but I just, you know, there's not a school by me or I just don't have time or things just didn't line up. But when they meet me and, and I like to think I'm somewhat approachable and then they think, well, here's my opportunity. I've met this guy and now I can, I, I, I can explore this because we can have fun and be friends and, and he can show me something. Very much. I mean, there's a, a lot of every day I wake up, I always think, you know, that the possibilities are endless and what we can achieve, you know, um, obviously, we, we we as humans can't fly yet and things like that. <laughs> we may be able to one day in the future. But for now, you, there are so many possibilities that we can achieve. And it really baffles me when people say things like, oh, I'm bored, I've got nothing to do, or I, I don't want to 
explore this new thing that uh, that I could go and achieve. Uh, there are so many things that you can go and achieve, and it's good that the students are coming to you because they want to, I guess, in a sense, better themselves for what the world can offer them in terms of oh, adversity. Yes. That's absolutely true, and and maybe it's just something that comes to them and their karma, their life. Say, bringing it back to Adam again, he's a guy that's always had some interest in martial arts, but it just never sort of fell in his lap in his travels and his, in his adventures. And all of a sudden this falls in his lap and he's the kind of guy that just takes advantage of the, the situation as it comes, you know, whether it's living on a boat or whatever he does in life. And so he meets me and goes, yeah, you know, I'm interested in the martial arts. I want to get in better shape. And then bam, he just applies himself and becomes, you know, Bruce Lee like in physique in, in a very short amount of time. And, and just showing you what you can do in life if you put your mind to it. And it's again, it's that confidence thing that you really do get from it. You know, you can look yourself in the mirror and think, wow, that's actually me. You know, I've achieved this myself. It's not been handed oh, to me on a plate. <laughs> he always. <laughs> um, so I also wanted to talk about your novel, Sherlock Holmes, The Autumn of Terror. So um, first off, I wanted to know where you got the inspiration to write the novel. Well, I got the, uh, you know, first of all, the interest in the Ripper case. Um caused me to put my mind to it and solve the case. And then once I got Dr. Baden's attention and convinced him that I had solved it, I thought, well, if I can convince Dr. Baden and he could look at my evidence and understand that I've solved it, basically nobody else matters. Because if Dr. Baden can be convinced, then, then I've got it. I've cracked it. So once we, once Dr. Yeah. Baden got on board <laughs> and decided that after having reviewed my case and, and was fully convinced that I had cracked the case, we then got together with the other two co-authors, which were friends of his, Drs. Wecht and Lee, and we sort of powwowed. And we decided uh, as a group that these three guys have written tons of true, true crime novels. They've written, you know, like the one that I had Dr. Biden sign when I first met him. And they all three sort of agreed that this was too big a case to do as a true crime novel that would probably be buried among a thousand other Jack the Ripper true crime novels that have been written. Because everybody and their brother has said they've solved it for the past 132 years. And so they thought, if you write it as a true crime novel, even with our names on it, it might not really go too far. So what we need is a kind of a hook. We need something that will sort of bring more people into the the case people that really weren't interested in jack the ripper necessarily maybe people that like true crime but weren't really interested in the ripper we, we need something to bring more people in and the fact is that all four of us were drawn into criminology and law enforcement through our interest as boys in the jack the ripper case and sherlock holmes um, all of us were inspired by holmes's methods and his his way of thinking and his his methodology so we all thought well it's kind of a natural fit to try to write this as a Holmes novel that way you're going to bring in people that didn't have any interest in maybe true crime or Jack the Ripper but they're Sherlock Holmes fans because they watch Benedict Cumberbatch or they watch uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Or, or Johnny Lee Miller that play respectively Sherlock Holmes in different TV shows and movies and these people that like Sherlock Holmes will 
maybe pick up the book because they're interested in Holmes and they like reading about him. And then they'll be brought into the fact that you've solved the Ripper case together with that. Or people that like Jack the Ripper might pick it up just because it's not just another dry account of the crimes that they've already read hundreds of books about and none of them had a satisfactory conclusion to the case. So they're not going to pick up just another Ripper book. So how do we do it? We, we try to bring in some entertainment value and, and made it a book that anyone could enjoy just for on the face of it as a Sherlock Holmes entertaining piece of work or as a true crime novel. That's that's beautiful. That's a really interesting hook that you got there. It, it makes it so unique. I mean, was there any like, um, do you have any offers for any to go on like TV or anything to sort of talk I've about it more? I've spoken to a couple of different um, people that do documentaries and um, there, things started happening. And then with um, the recent, with COVID, pretty much all that stuff is shut down, production on all those types of shows. But I'm hoping that in 2021, when things clear up, that some of those people will pick up where they left off with me and, and do a documentary. But I also had a very unique experience the same time when I was in London and met with you. Um, I was there training a, a MMA fighter called Kiwan Gracie, one of the Gracie family. And I was training him for a, a fight that he was about to have, which ended up getting canceled thanks to COVID. But um, I was in London training him. And by by coincidence, uh, Kiwan trains Guy Ritchie. So you know who that is. He's the director of all the Sherlock Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr. And he's Madonna's ex-husband. Yeah. So Guy Ritchie trains at the very gym where I was teaching Kiwan. So Kiwan talked to Guy about the fact that I was coming into town and told him a little bit about my book. And Guy asked for a copy of my book and was interested in it. So Kiwan arranged it and I was able to give Guy a copy of my book. But that was, you know, back then. And that was just shortly before all this COVID stuff happened. So I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed that Guy's reading it or has read it. And maybe at some point he's going to contact me and say, let's do something with this. That'd be incredible. I mean, just, uh, you know, uh, keep on. Um, I hope you got some contact numbers there and emails just well, to he, make Kiwan sure. Does. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if there's any one single person on the planet that I would want to hand my book to, it would be Guy Ritchie. And you've handed it to him. I mean, that must be an yeah, incredible it's, feeling. <laughs> it's just, you know, fingers crossed that, you know, he ends up maybe wanting to do something with it. Everyone listening today, cross your fingers as well for Randy. <laughs> um, so uh, with my uh, previous guest, Adam, as well, obviously we also spoke about he has been writing as well. And it makes me wonder with writers, um, did you have a set goal you were hoping to achieve when you were writing this novel? Or um, were you hoping something else would be achieved? Um, maybe, obviously, like you said, with getting people hooked on um, the Sherlock Holmes thing. Uh, maybe even taking a, a slight interest in history, mm -hmm. for example. Was there like a set goal you were hoping well, with, to achieve? With, with the book, yes. I mean, I, I tried to make it an educational thing while being fun. So I like to think that you learn a lot as you go. And, and Americans particularly will learn a lot about British history and culture, things that even maybe some modern day Brits don't know. For example, like I use the term trap in the book. And a trap 
to an American is just what it sounds like, but to a British person that knows something about history, they know that's a horse-drawn carriage. So when you read the book, you know, rather than make you feel stupid and refer to a trap and leave it so that you got to figure it out, I'll put a little footnote to explain what a trap might be so that you'll, you now feel like, oh, well, I know something a little bit more about history. Or, or maybe like when we refer to jail, back then we used the old British spelling G-A-O-L, and then, of course, for an American who doesn't really know much about history, they might not know what that word was. And so there's a little footnote to explain that's the old British spelling of the word jail. And as you're reading the book, you find out what's meant by, you know, what's a DOS house? Um, what, you know, what's Cockney rhyming slang? And these are things that you as a, as a Brit know, but um, the average American has no idea there's such a thing as Cockney rhyming slang or when it was created or what it was used for. So it's a little bit of an educational thing along the way. But, uh, but my long-term goal um, in writing the book was really to become the person acknowledged by the British crown as the person who solved the Jack the Ripper murders and once and for all exonerated the British family, the royal family of all blame in the case because there's this pervasive rumor to this day, if you get 10 educated people together in a room and you mention Jack the Ripper, at least one of them is going to say, wasn't he a royal? Referring to the fact that at one time, Prince El Edward Albert Victor was, was considered a suspect, not by the police, but by the public, because he was involved in something called the Cleveland Street Scandal. It was a homosexual brothel in London near Whitechapel, and he was a client there, and there was a police raid on it. And so because of the fact that he was sort of, they tried to keep it quiet, but it got out. And back in those days, people thought that a homosexual man was um, was some sort of, a, I don't know, a pervert, uh, a uh, likely criminal, um, a likely sex offender. And so Prince Edward Albert Victor was drawn in as a Jack the Ripper suspect strictly on the basis of his homosexuality. And I always dreamed that someday, having solved the crimes and proved there was actually a royal connection, but it had nothing to do with the British royal family. It was as a connection to the Russian royal family. Um, I, I always Whoa. dreamed that that I would someday be recognized by the crown. I don't know if as an American I could ever be knighted, but I always dreamed that someday in writing this book, I would come face to face with the queen or one of the princes who may eventually be king. Um, and be recognized as the detective who solved the Jack the Ripper murders and exonerated the royal family once and for all. That's an incredible goal. I, I really do hope you achieve that. that. Oh, wow. That would be just... You, 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 will, you would go down in British history as well, but, um, you know, the, the detective who actually solved it and kids would learn about you in school and Sir stuff. Sir Randy. <laughs> I don't know if, if they can actually knight yeah. a non... British subject, but if they could, I'd, that'd be my dream. That'd be beautiful. I'll keep my fingers crossed for you that, on Knight that as well. The Royal Order of the Bath. Um, that would be my dream. The Seif. The Royal Order of the Seif. <laughs> Sir Seif. Perfect. Sir Seif a lot. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue perfectly. <laughs> um, where did your love of history first start then, out of curiosity as well? well? I mean, I, I'm kind of a history buff in, in to be honest with you, it, it was probably because of a series of novels that I started reading as a kid that are so 
fucking fun. Can I, can I say fuck on this show? Yeah, so, no, that's cool. I just uh, don't mind so, the C so, word. <laughs> it's so <still> incredibly <laughs> um, entertaining. There, there's a series of books um, written by a, an author called George McDonald Fraser. And there are a, a series of books about a character called um, Colonel Harry Flashman. And he's this British scoundrel. He's a really handsome, um, really lucky scoundrel. And he's sort of a coward, but he always manages to come out on top smelling like a rose. And, and the author places him in all these unique historical situations. And it's sort of an anachronism because no one person could have been at all these different events, but he'll place him alongside Pocahontas or next to Abraham Lincoln or Matahari or, or you know, in China during the Boxer Rebellion or, or any other given point in history. And this Colonel Harry Flashman manages to weasel his way in to the most important uh, or situations with the most important people in the, in the world or in that situation at the time. And he's chasing women and just being a complete scoundrel. And then when it comes time to do battle, he somehow or another by cowering underneath the table ends up being the last survivor and then gets the, you know, the Victoria cross for bravery because he he's the last survivor <laughs> at Kanpur at, in, at the Indian mutiny or, you know, whatever situation. So reading those novels and they're, they're hilarious and they're, they're educational. And in fact, they were a model for my book in the sense that I tried to mix history with fiction and I tried to make it entertaining. And I used footnotes the way that McDonald Fraser does. And I actually feature Harry Flashman. Colonel Harry Flashman actually does a cameo in my book. When Dr. Watson is in Afghanistan fighting, um, he encounters Colonel Flashman for just a brief moment in the book. But I was able to pay a little tribute to him. So I guess that was a long and roundabout way of answering your question of why I'm interested in history and particularly British history. And it was thanks to the Flashman novels. And also the fact that I spent some years living in Singapore, which was a British colony until sort of 40 plus years ago. And so living in Singapore, there's a lot of the British customs and there's a lot of history there with Sir Stamford Raffles that established the colony there. And, um, you know, the, the educational system is the British system. So when I went there, there were a lot of terms being used in, that I had never heard before and things like, I don't know, just off the top of my head, a bunch of British guys that lived there as ex expatriates would go on a run and they called it a hash. And that's something that an American would never know what that means. But you as a Brit know that a hash is a group run and it, things like that. So it kind of got, it piqued my interest. It all kind of dovetailed together. That's beautiful. I mean, I'm still, uh, two of the things you said there, um, one of the um, members of the royal family being accused by the public as being um, a murderer of the Ripper. And um, uh, Singapore, you said it was a British colony until about 40 year plus years ago. Uh, I'm still learning these things. So this is brilliant. I'm, I'm loving this. Thank you. <laughs> um, when you uh, spoke to Jimmy Church, I was uh, really intrigued. I, I was I love that interview, by the way. Um, one thing that did stand out to me a lot was um, on the night of Catherine Eddowes murder, you were talking about two people being involved. Um, but one thing I did want to ask you was why you think the killings just stopped um, that, um, it, that they just thinned out. Do you, do you feel that the work, the, the work was done well, there's, there? There's a couple of reasons why they stopped. And that's a question that 
people have been asking for 132 years. But actually, the, the, the person who masterminded the murders and funded the murders and paid the three men that executed the murderers, Prince Kropotkin of Russia, I believe he answered the question for you because in his writings where he praises Jack the Ripper in, in later years, he actually praises Jack the Ripper's work and says, if the Ripper was ever caught, you know, um, we might at first want to put a bullet through his brain, but if we really got into his head, we would understand that we should not hate him, but we should hate the system that created the need for him. And one of the things that Kropotkin uh, references in his talks about Jack the Ripper is the fact that the Ripper stopped killing because he felt that the public in general wanted him to stop. So that's one answer. Another reason why the Ripper stopped killing is the fact that it, the public was becoming jaded to the killings. You know, at first it was this sensationalism of this, you know, these gruesome prostitute murders. And then it was sort of, it sort of became, oh, it's another Ripper murder. Yeah, what else is in the news? So it lost some of its impact. And thirdly, and in my book, more importantly than those two, the third reason the murders stopped was because my three suspects were arrested in a, in a completely what would seem to be unrelated violent crime six months after the murder of Catherine Eddowes in the double event as it's publicized. And the three, my three suspects were, were actually arrested in a violent crime that had some really amazing well, they weren't coincidences because these were the guys that did the Ripper murders, but there were four commonalities between the Ripper killings and this crime that they were arrested for that nobody ever noticed until I came along. But Prince Kropotkin, as the mastermind of the crimes, as the person who orchestrated them, saw the commonalities and realized that someday or sometime soon, someone like Randy was going to come along and figure this out. And so he pulled his man that he brought from Russia to do the crimes, to, mass, to head the crimes. He pulled that guy out of London thinking, all right, it's getting too hot now. You've been arrested for a crime that has these connections to the Ripper crimes and someone's going to figure it out and we're going to get caught. So we need to stop. So he pulled his man out and sent him back to Russia. Wow. Yeah. I even found a newspaper article from the London Star where Prince Kropotkin visited the men's club, which was the headquarters of the Ripper crew. And Prince Kropotkin went there and said, he went, he went along with a famous Russian playwright called Stepniak, who himself was a convicted knife murderer. He had killed the head of the Russian secret police with a knife in public and was exiled from Russia. And he was Kropotkin's best buddy. They ran around London together. So Stepniak and Kropotkin visited the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was anything but an educational club. It was actually the headquarters for the socialist anarchist Jew Jewish community. And it was where my main suspect was the steward or president of the club, where one of the murders took place. In any case, Kropotkin showed up after the last Ripper murder, shortly after the last Ripper murder. And he said to the crowd there, I need all of you Russians here to come back with me to Russia, not tomorrow, immediately, to help me fight the good fight of the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. I need you to come back to Russia now. And at that point, Louis Diemschutz, who was the steward of the men's club and who was the main ripper of the, the actual ripper crew, uh, went back to Russia at that point with Kropotkin. 
And that's why the murders stopped because it's the leader of the gang that was actually committing the murders left the country because it was getting too hot. Yeah, I mean, there, there were some really gruesome murders. The, um, uh, who was the uh, poor, unfortunate woman who was found on the bed? Mary Kelly. Um, Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, that's the one, yep. Um, I mean, w- by far, I thought her case, w- w- uh, the way she died and how she was found was the most gruesome. And um, when things start to turn out that gruesome, uh, it, for me, that would have got too hot yeah, as well. And Mary Jane Kelly was decimated um and the reason they were able to to mutilate her to that extent which was even more gruesome than the Catherine Eddowes murder in Mitre Square was because um PC Watkins showed up at 1:42 a.m. and interrupted the the ripper while he was murdering while, while he was dismembering Catherine Eddowes but Mary Jane Kelly was killed in her own apartment in her own room in Dorset Street in Miller's Court and so the Ripper basically had hours to spend with the body uninterrupted and without fear of being caught. So he was able to carry out the most gruesome of all the murders. That's really unfortunate for her. Wow. I mean, we know, we, at least we think we know, that she was dead long before all those atrocities were performed on her body. So thankfully, she she didn't, she wasn't alive during all that mutilation. She was dead long before that. All those things happened. They removed her heart. They removed her uterus. They removed her breasts, her kidney. I mean, the the, the damage that was done to her body was incredible. But mercifully, she would have been dead long before any of those things took place. I suppose she never had to feel that. Then that's good. <laughs> um, I'm. I'll... Where um where did this fascination with the Ripper case come from? Was uh, what made it stand out to you was because there I guess um there would be other cases that you could have investigated, such as um uh, Guy Fawkes trying to blow up Parliament. But what made this stand well, out I to think you? The, um, you? I think you kind of answered the question for me yourself because we know that Guy Fawkes was you know involved in the gunpowder plot and and he was caught. And we know that Jeffrey Dahmer was, was, was the one that was killing the, the boys and, and mutilating and ca- cannibalizing them. We know that John Wayne Gacy did a similar thing. We know that Ted Bundy did what he did. But what we don't know is who the Ripper was. At least we didn't know. And so I think just the fact that it was unsolved and I was unsatisfied. I had read so many different accounts of the murders and so many different people put forth suspects some of them were just ridiculous and and some had certain logic but nobody had actual evidence what we would consider evidence admissible in a court of law against any suspect although i do have that because well because they did it but the fact is i was unsatisfied with any of the solutions put forth by hundreds of authors before me so i think that was probably my main the driving force that I, that finally, at, at some point, I was spending so much time in London on other business that I just thought, you know what, I'm going to put my mind to it. I'm going to crack this thing. It must have felt incredible when you finally oh, did. Just unbelievable. I mean, I still, I still feel it. It's, it's still very new to me and very exciting to me. I mean, a never-ending I mean, feeling. <laughs> I've, I've accomplished certain things in the martial arts. You know, some people might argue that, but. I mean, 
everything I've done in the martial arts um, is still when when I die, what would I want engraved on my headstone? The detective that solved the Jack the Ripper murders. That would be my crowning achievement in life. That's Seriously, absolutely perfect. <laughs> um, so what would you say you personally learned out of studying the history of our world and how we have, has evolved as um, a, a human race, I guess? <laughs> how, how it would be possible to prevent history from repeating itself, although we're powerless as individuals to do so. But the fact is that history will go on repeating itself as people don't educate themselves and understand the ramifications or implications of their actions. So that, you know, without, without getting delving into politics or anything, um, if we look at, if you understand history and you understand the ramifications of the actions taken by governments or individuals in the past, we can easily predict the, the probable outcome of our actions today. In criminology, we say the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So when you look at a, a criminal offender and you're trying to figure out who he is or, or what he, he, why he did what he did, you, you look at your suspect's past behavior for clues. For example, with serial killers, there's this triangle they talk about, fire starting, bedwetting and cruelty to animals. If you look at almost any serial killer in history, you'll find that that person has likely a history of those three things. And so past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior in criminology, but not only in the criminal world, but in my opinion, in the world in general. So those, they say, there's a saying that those who do not, I'm paraphrasing, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. And so if you don't understand, for example, the ramifications of changing a political system in your country, or if you don't understand the ramifications of changing a particular policy or law, or you don't understand the ramifications of, of smoking dope or what, just anything, any, anything, you don't understand the, the ramifications of what you're doing then you're doomed to repeat others' mistakes or you're doomed or not doomed, but you're destined to repeat others' successes. If you want to talk about in the martial arts and you go, well, my teacher said it was good to do a thousand kicks once a week. That's why he could kick like that. His foot sizzled through the air when he kicked. So if I want my foot to sizzle through the air like that, then I need to repeat history and be just like my teacher and do a thousand kicks a week. So if you want to take it on that minuscule level or you want to take it to the level of, of, of a political upheaval, you, you just have to understand that the knowledge of history, whether it's personal history, martial art history, political history, you know, criminal history. Now, moving on to rock security, um, I, was, um, I was curious as well, um, was that something you wanted to go into um while you were doing martial arts or was that something that was just um, a door that opened to you um, thanks to the martial arts? Well, yeah, but you're, you're, you're sort of on the right, you mean you're already on the right track. It, it, it fell in my lap. When I was real young, I used to run a school in LA Chinatown and to, one of my students was a kid called Alan Yi. 
And his family, his grandparents owned a very well-established um, Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. It was one of those really dark, heavy, carved wood, beautiful, ornate facade with dragons and, you know, just a beautiful place in Chinatown that was a place that if you went there to eat in the booths, you'd see pictures of sort of Dean Martin and uh, Frank Sinatra eating there and John Wayne, you know, signed pictures. It was one of those kind of places. And it was at that period in the 80s, it was sort of on a Chinatown in, in general was just was, was a, a declining economy. People weren't coming, tourists weren't coming to Chinatown. The restaurant was failing. And even though it was this really well-established landmark in, in Los Angeles, it just wasn't succeeding like it used to. And so Alan and his sister Alicia, they were twins, got this brilliant idea to turn it into a rock venue. And they, don't ask me how they got this brilliant idea, but they thought, you know, the punk rock and new wave movements were just starting to come up. And they thought, let's, let's turn this into a rock venue and book some, you know, up and coming new wave bands, punk bands, and, and see if we can liven this place up and make some money. So they did. And it was called Madame Wong's, Madame Wong's um, restaurant. And so what happened was they started out by booking a group that was called The Knack, who weren't popular, weren't famous, had no hits. And they had a song that My Sharona. And that band suddenly skyrocketed to fame with My Sharona, but they were playing a regular gig on Thursdays at Madame Wong's. So in came this huge crowd of people to see the knack. And then what happened was they started through word of mouth meeting other up and coming new wave punk um, bands that were in, in our area. So we started getting groups like um, Martha and the Motels who ended up with, you know, only the lonely and a few other big hits. And we had what were then <laughs> called the mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo that ended up changing the Oingo Boingo, the Elfman brothers who ended up scoring all these Tim Burton movies. And we had, you know, different groups coming in and they were, you know, they were getting bigger and bigger. And eventually we had the Rolling Stones play. We had the Jay Giles band play there. We had the police come in and play all under assumed names. They didn't use their actual rock group names. When the Stones played, they pretended to be, you know, something like Jimmy and the Juke Joints. And they only had their personal friends come and whoever the regular crowd that would come to Madame Wong's. So I kind of got into the rock security that way, sort of by chance. And then um, we had this comedian there come in and do a show his name was Fraser Smith and he was the most popular LA rock DJ on KLOS radio which is still operating today and um, Fraser was the morning DJ and his partner Al Ramirez were the the morning comedy team they were like the biggest thing that ever hit LA in terms of comedy radio and they played a gig and I was the security at, at Madame Wong's because Alan who was my student thought, you know, we're starting to get, things are getting out of hand here. There's fights, there's people stealing our money. So he hired me to do security. I guess I missed that part in the story, but he hired me to come in and do the security for Madame Wong's. And I was just a dumb kid, martial artist. I had no idea about how to run security, but I learned by doing, you know, breaking up fights and guarding the cash till and yeah. that sort of thing and checking IDs and all the things that you do at a club. So eventually there was a night when Miss Fraser Smith came and played and, or, did his comedy routine and there was a heckler in the audience who unplugged his amp and 
was bothering him. And eventually I solved that, that problem for him. And he asked me to be his personal security guy. And so I would go on and do these different appearances at different clubs, the whiskey, a go-go starwood, you know, Roxy, all the rock clubs, he would do the comedy routines or he would MC a lot of bands. And by tagging along with Fraser and doing his security, I met different groups and got to meet them and do security. We were, I met like Ray Manzarek from the doors. I got to sit with him and, and, you know, have drinks with him while, while he was there with uh, whatever her name, Mackenzie Phillips, I think was his girlfriend. Or, and so we, you know, I met people and, and, and networked that way. And people are like, well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm Fraser's security. Oh, you do security. Well, how'd you like to do security for us? That's beautiful that it branched and off that, like that. And just, yeah. um, such a just one moment like we were talking about as well you know you you do one action and it changes your life forever really (laughs) it did it did it it keeps you humble and it keeps you grounded as a person and it makes you more approachable to people i guess well i would hope so um so um, next question was uh what do you personally believe the value of a strong faith brings into someone's life even if it's not religion based because some people could argue that um faith is more than just a religion that something that keeps them going in life well if if you don't have faith if you don't believe in any any greater good or 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 any repercussions for your actions i guess it would mold your character in a bad way I think that if you had if you had no faith, if you didn't think that you were somehow someday going to be held accountable for your actions, you would tend to not really have too much interest in whether you hurt other people or whether you wronged other people in some way. Whereas if you have a faith in in sort of an you know a, a final accounting at some point when you die, um, you it would guide your actions to be a much more honorable person and trustworthy person and loving person. If you, if you're talking about faith in, in the future, just faith that your actions will bring, you know, karma. If you want to look at sort of a Buddhism and you want to think about karma as a form of faith, well, it is. And if you thought, if you had no faith, if you thought there was no such thing as karma, a lot of people say what goes around comes around, which is kind of cryptic, but, Everybody kind of yeah. knows it means if you do something bad, it's going to come back to you. And if you had not that faith, if you if you had not that belief that there were there were repercussions for your actions, um, not only would you behave dishonorably, but you would probably lose sight of a goal. You would probably think, well, you know, I have no faith that working hard is going to allow me to buy a house someday, or I have no faith that what I do for the community will, will, will somehow benefit me or others in some way. I have no faith that what I'm doing is even worth anything. Like people that become suicidal are so because they've lost their faith in life, in, in the good of humanity, in, in the, the perp in purpose of living, they've lost that. And then that causes people to commit suicide they've they've lost their faith and not not necessarily religious faith just faith in 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 repercussions of their actions faith that that some good will come of this even when something bad happens faith that there'll be some silver lining that something good will come of this to be able to say this too shall pass and 
and something something will will change because of this that this action of mine be it good or bad something will will come of it and if you don't have that faith i think it leads to sort of purposeness purposelessness of living why would you even where do you believe people can find that faith then if it's uh, really hard to find uh, certain points of people's lives of, of adversity I think there's some people find it in religion. Some people find it in music. Some people find it in martial arts. Some people find it in other physical pursuits like art. Um, People can find faith and and purpose in life in charity, charitable work, Um, in, in, in going down to the the, the red cross and volunteering and serving Thanksgiving dinner for the poor. In, in, in donating some of their salary, in, in going and being a missionary in a, a, a third world country, in offering their home to a, a sick person or a, um, in offering their home to a homeless person. You, you can find faith and, and it doesn't just have to be one. You can find faith in, I personally have found faith in a number of those items I just named. Um, you can find it in caring for animals, you know, it's, it's a very deeply personal thing that it has to strike a chord within you and no one can tell you what, what that chord is. And some people unfortunately go through life seeking that and never find it or find it too late or, or very late in life, but it's there and, and just have faith in faith. It's like to be in love with being in love, have faith that there is faith for you, have faith that you'll find it and pursue it. Don't sit on your couch pursue it what what what, yeah. what avenues are there for me to achieve this faith yeah uh, going on from what you were saying there it, it is a personal thing it does strike that chord within you and when you feel that inside um it, it, it's it's such an undescribable feeling that it's only so unique to you really i mean um, um you worded it perfectly there <laughs> i mean you just you um, have to pursue it and, and when you find it you'll know 110 <laughs> percent um now i know we've all had um our experiences with 2020 and dealt with it in our own way i don't think any of us were really ready for it but um what is one thing you think we as a species can learn from 2020 to better our world for generations to come and why well myself i i learned to be better prepared to be self-sufficient to not rely on anyone to hand feed me anything, to understand that at any given time, your livelihood can be pulled right out from under you like a rug, to understand that, you know, the, the priority of things, the, the, the things that are really important in life and to cherish and value those things. And to, but, but getting back to my original answer, to be prepared to, you know, myself, I live on a 50 acre farm. I got horses. I can hunt here if I need to. I have my own well and septic with a generator to provide power. I have everything that I need in life is right here on my farm. And, you know, I prepped myself in 2020 forced me to go buy a generator. Cause I thought, well, what if the grid goes down? Um, you know, it caused me to put four months of food in my pantry and to stock up on hay for the horses and grain for the horses and dog food and, things things that are needed in life 
you know, not to be a hoarder. I didn't go buy 5,000 rolls of toilet paper. Maybe I should have, but, um, but more like um, <laughs> just being prepared. I've been, been taught by 2020 to expect the unexpected and to be prepared to be self-sufficient in, in all ways possible to not rely on any one or anything to provide for you, to be able to provide for oneself and, and not, to, not to be at the mercy of anyone, any government, any entity, any person, not to be, not to be reliant on anyone for, for your livelihood, to be able to survive regardless of any adversity that might come to you. That, I, I think that answer kind of goes back to what you were saying about achieving uh, working for the black belt um, I guess right certainly circles back yes yeah um, so I do have a, fa- a question from a fan of the show um, Tasman Rattle asks what is the process to become a PI and did you find it difficult personally Yeah, it, it was actually very difficult um, it depends on what state uh, in the United States. Now, in, in England, I understand it's a little bit difficult, too, because I have a, a good friend who became a PI in London recently, and he's, but he's actually a Romanian national, so that might have been part of the obstacle. I'm not really sure about in, in England. I don't know what country your listener is in, but if your listener is in the United States, um, it depends on what state. There are certain states where it's really quite easy to become a private investigator through taking courses that are offered, um, through, through the government, there are, you can go to certain state colleges that offer police science and, uh, or criminal justice, and they have courses to become a private investigator. It all depends on what state you're in. Now in Pennsylvania, where I'm located, for example, it is very difficult to become a private investigator for just the average person, average citizen, because you have to have at least five years of high level law enforcement supervision um, status. You have to be a lieutenant or higher in, in a, a, law, a recognized law enforcement agency like state police or a, a local police agency, um, FBI, something like you have to have a certain status before you can retire and, and get your private eye status. So Pennsylvania, they're very, diff, they're very um, discerning about who they let become a private investigator. I really lucked out that they used I had background as a private investigator under a private investigator in New York City, and they credited me with that for my law enforcement. They um, credited me with when I became a federal protection officer in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. They counted that as law enforcement. So I, I checked that box. Um, but in, in states like, a state like Florida, it's quite easy. Just some, some courses that you would take at a, a junior college a local college of criminal justice, you can pass that course and then obtain your PI license. Oh, congratulations with it. <laughs> it's, you definitely worked hard for so much in your life and it's um, really rewarding to, I, I definitely can hear it in your answers there as well, that you've, you feel uh, this great sense of accomplishment that you've got with all this hard well, work. I don't want to come off that, you know, bragging about it. I mean, it's just, I've been really lucky. A lot of things came to me, fell in my lap. You know, I worked hard, there's no doubt, but a lot of it was luck and a lot of it was, was good friends helping me. I never could have done it without them. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to come off that I'm, you know, this all, you know, great private investigator or anything like that. It just, it, it, I was really fortunate. 
That, that's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> um, so I'm um, finally, I don't want to keep you any longer. It's been a beautiful conversation. So thank you for coming on oh, the show again. Um, no, thank you. I'm glad you've had fun. Um, but what is one thing that you'd say today to anyone who might be listening, who is struggling to find positivity in their lives and finding it hard to work to new heights they can achieve in this world? I would think that if you're, a, if you're, struggling with maybe depression or you're thinking that you know maybe set low self-esteem i think that there are a lot of opportunities out there to help someone that's less fortunate than yourself and to always look at the things that you do have in life that you might take for granted and understand that there are so many people out there that don't have those things and to to take the time out to strengthen yourself spiritually because that's where you're weak if you're feeling that way you know in the martial arts it's supposed to ideally be a blend of of spiritual uh physical and mental strengths so you might be really strong a great weightlifter, um but you might be lacking in spiritual strength or you might be lacking in the science of the art or you might be a really brainy person that really understands the science of it but you haven't trained physically and you can't throw a very hard punch or kick or you might be a priest or someone that's very spiritually strong, but lack the other two. So in order to build the spiritual side, which is the side that would be lacking in a situation like what you described, what you have to find is your own personal spiritual exercise, like almost like spiritual weightlifting. So let's say that, you know, you find some sort of, some sort of, uh, reward in in helping the poor and and serving dinner at thanksgiving for the poor or or donating money or or working with disabled people and so whatever that is that you might do that you find rewarding um is a sort of a spiritual weightlifting, so to speak where you're strengthening your spirit so that you feel that you are in fact a worthy person and deserving to be on this earth in the martial arts, the way it relates, to, I know that sounds cryptic, but in the way it relates to the martial arts is if you want to be a great martial artist, you have to have, you know, physical strength. You've got to work out. You've got to throw punches and kicks. You've got to train. You have to have the science. You have to understand the angles of blocking, the center line theory, facing, economy of motion, trapping, timing, science. But you also have to have a certain spiritual strength that's says to you, you know, like, I'm worth it. I'm a worthwhile person. I belong on this earth. And if anybody approached you and threatened your life on the street, you would have not only the strength and the science to beat that person, but the, the sentiment, the feeling inside that, hey, I belong on this planet. I'm a worthwhile person. I'm a good person. I'm a valuable person. You're not taking my life. I belong here. I have a right to be here. And that, that's an important factor in a fight, in my opinion. Having a self-worth, you're, you're worth protecting. You're worth defending. And <clears throat> doing things that strengthen you spiritually, whatever those might be, whether it's donating time to, to disabled people or, or, or going to church or, or writing music, which will, will carry on after you're dead and, and inspire people, whatever that thing is that you have to find in life, do that thing and strengthen yourself and think of it like, you know, you're doing curls in the gym. You're doing spiritual curls. So in a sense, it's selfish. It's self-serving in a sense, because 
yeah, I'm helping the poor because it makes me feel like a better person. Maybe that's a little bit selfish, but you know, at the same time, it's a, it's a worthwhile pursuit and it'll make you a, a, a prouder person and a, 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 it'll increase your self-worth in your own mind. That's what I think anyway. That's a beautiful way to close it out. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, I've had an absolute blast having you on today. Thank you so much for coming on. It, it does mean a lot that you've um, jumped on this one as well. Um, you having me on. It's, it's been really fun. And I'm looking forward to just chatting with you off offline and, you know, any, any of these things you want to talk about and just shoot the shit a little bit. Always. Thank you so much, Randy. Absolute honor to have you on the show, my friend. Thank you for checking out today's episode. If you enjoyed, please consider dropping a subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and share with a friend. It all means so much to me. Thank you. See you in the next one.